world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to this Monday pre-debate, debate eve version of the Dan Proft Show edition. They're just new additions. The addition to the Dan Prof Show, follow us, danprofshow.com, and on social media at Dan Prof Show. And uh, just point of order on social media, one of the reasons to follow the program on social media is because I post a lot of the source material that's used in addition to the uh, selected interviews uh, on standalone. So you can don't need to necessarily wade through the entire podcast to perhaps get an interview you're looking for. So that's uh, one reason. Source material and interviews uh, post on social media. Much of it is there. So that's why it is useful to follow. Uh, We begin with the big news from over the weekend, of course, that as expected, President Trump nominated one uh, Seventh Circuit appellate court justice and former Notre Dame law professor and former clerk for Antonin Scalia, Amy Coney Barrett, to the high court. Today, it is my honor to nominate one of our nation's most brilliant and gifted legal minds to the Supreme Court. She is a woman of unparalleled achievement, towering intellect, sterling credentials, and unyielding loyalty to the Constitution, Judge Amy Coney Barrett. Ah, and uh, Amy Coney Barrett uh, echoed the president's statements. I love the United States, and I love the United States Constitution. And uh, where essentially a a quick statement on her judicial philosophy and um, uh, the Scalia influence. I clerked for Justice Scalia more than 20 years ago, but the lessons I learned still resonate. His judicial philosophy is mine, too. A judge must apply the law as written. Judges are not policymakers. And they must be resolute in setting aside any policy views they might hold. Uh, getting a, a lot of uh, folks coming forward on the op-ed pages and in interviews to sing her praises, including uh, former students um, uh, like uh, this young man, uh, Hayden Peterson. When registration opens every year, her class fills up within seconds. And that's because people recognize that she really is at the top of the field. A uh, Student will talk a little bit more in detail about her op-ed a little bit later in the show, but um, a woman named Laura Woke writing in firstthings.com who went on to graduate from Notre Dame Law School in 2016 and become the first blind female Supreme Court clerk in history credits uh, Amy Coney Barrett with helping her on uh, more than one occasion to uh, navigate her way through law school and and accommodate her disability. A really, uh, really nice piece, really poignant piece. Of course, she's immediately met by the attacks. One would expect dogma lives loudly within you. Um, Yes, sure. But also, of course, in the era of identitarian politics and the race hustle, the uh, fact that she had she and her husband adopted two Haitian children, which would you think would be uh, a positive? This wonderful. um, They have five children. They adopt two more. They're doing what they can to provide uh, a life in America for all seven children, but particularly the two kids from Haiti. That would be unimaginable in Haiti. They've rescued those two kids, arguably. 
You would think that would be a positive. Well, and that's where you'd be wrong. A Democrat operative, Dana Houle, over the weekend. I would love to know which adoption agency Amy Coney Barrett and her husband used to adopt the two children they brought here from Haiti. Here's the question. Does the press even investigate details of Barrett's adoptions from Haiti? Some adoptions from Haiti were legit. Many were sketchy as hell. And if press learned they were unethical, maybe illegal adoptions, would they report it or not because it involves her children? Would it matter if her kids were scooped up by ultra-religious Americans or Americans weren't scrupulous intermediaries and the kids were taken when there was family in Haiti? That's a nice uh, intersection of the two attacks, right? The one is that she's a human trafficker. The other is that she's a religious nut. Ultra Kids scooped up by ultra-religious Americans. That's a lot in one sentence. A lot of accusation in one sentence, isn't it? It's just remarkable. Not that I would ever suggest having her kids dragged into this. It seems like a lovely family, and I understand um, just from the reporting that her kids are doing very well, all seven of them. But, I mean, the older you get, the more you recognize your parents' sacrifices for you. And uh, I know her her oldest, uh, the daughter from Haiti, is uh, uh, a bit older, and uh, she's probably starting to recognize that, particularly as she learns more about – uh, her native country. Um, I, I say this as somebody who was adopted. So, and I was adopted when I was three days old. But, you know, as you get older, you recognize, oh, the things you took for granted while you were being, while you were growing up. Oh my gosh, I, the, my, my parents sacrificed uh, to send me to this school. My parents sacrificed to help me with this, to help me with that, provided for me, and so on and so forth. You gain an appreciation for it. So the idea that uh, left-wing hacks are intervening on behalf of these poor kids who were, what, kidnapped from Haiti to live uh, a privileged life in the Midwest with two very successful attorneys as their parents uh, in a loving family with five other kids. It sounds just horrible. I'm so glad they're so concerned about those two kids from Haiti. Now, they aren't concerned about the entire country of Haiti. Not at least not enough to question the Clinton Foundation, a.k.a. Clinton's Inc., raping and pillaging of Haiti for profit. But uh, they're very concerned about uh, about Coney Barrett's kids. Isn't that nice? Uh, And for those suggesting that the whole process is illegitimate, thus they're going to throw a temper tantrum and they're not even going to deign to meet with Amy Coney Barrett. That's what uh, Dick Blumenthal, who is, you know, a stolen valor guilty of stolen valor. I mean, so just in terms of his, uh, I know he's a former state attorney general, but he's uh, also a despicable liar about his service record. Uh, He's, that's what he said. I'm not going to meet with her because to to meet with her is to legitimize something that is illegitimate, a president appointing, a president nominating somebody to fill a Supreme Court vacancy. That's what he considers illegitimate. Okay, fine. Um, But uh, it is worth remembering that you can share with your friends that uh, Democrat socialists have no one to thank but themselves, starting in 2013 when Harry Reid, under pressure from leftists, especially pro-aborts, exercised the nuclear option, abolishing Senate rules and uh, abolishing the filibuster on nominees to district and circuit courts. Only 50 votes, 51 votes, rather than the 60 votes to invoke cloture and proceed to a the nomination of a circuit court or a district court judge. Hmm. 
the uh, threat to filibuster Gorsuch and every other Trump nominee by Democrats. The uh, much-discussed dogma lives loudly within you exchange with Dianne Feinstein during her confirmation hearing to the Seventh Circuit. And, of course, the nuclear option in a different way, the character assassination, Brett Kavanaugh, during his confirmation hearing. As uh, Tim Carney writes over Washington Examiner, particularly about the Kavanaugh hearing, this radicalized conservatives, but it also radicalized more moderate Republicans. Without this smear campaign, one or two of the vulnerable Democrats in Florida, Indiana, Missouri, or North Dakota might have won re-election. Had two of those Democrats won, Barrett wouldn't have a majority of the Senate right now. Yeah. Uh, had um, DiFi not uh, engaged in open and notorious Catholic bigotry during her Seventh Circuit confirmation hearing, you may not even know who uh, Mary Coney Barrett was. It doesn't mean she wouldn't have been nominated anyway because of her record, but she wouldn't have had the profile going in uh, to the Seventh Circuit. She wouldn't have the profile in this context that she had, I mean, again, for president spoiling for fights with the left on this order, particularly when he thinks there'll be short-term political advantage to him if they continue to overreach, as is their want, again. Uh, the the Kavanaugh confirmation hearing being being the uh, case study. So for those uh, uh, trying to uh, throw themselves on the pyre in honor of Merrick Garland and complaining about uh, the Biden rule and uh, the nuclear option and so on and so forth, all the machinations of the Senate, the bottom line is, bottom line, first of all, it's not hypocrisy. We've gone through that, but that's second, you know, divided government versus government by one party, meaning executive in the Senate. That's the top line on that. But um, the, uh, the the bottom line on where we are now, um, it is all Democrat socialists hoist by their own petar for being hysterical and bigoted. That's called uh, cosmic justice. Mary uh, Amy Coney Barrett will be in the business of uh, constitutional justice but uh, she will also be the deliverer of cosmic justice when she is confirmed this is dan prof i don't care what you say anymore this is my life go ahead with your own life exposing political fakers fixers and takers he's dan Proft, and this is the dan Proft show Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Maria Bartiroma reporting yesterday, per her sources, no Durham report slash indictments pre-election. It is unlikely that we will get a John Durham interim report or any indictments before the election. Now just 37 days away, a debate has begun within the Department of Justice as the timing of John Durham's criminal investigation conclusions. I'm being told by sources it is now too close to the election and could be viewed as politically motivated. However, I can confirm Durham's investigation is significant and it is expanding. Reports Friday that Durham has expanded the scope of his uh, investigation to include the Clinton Foundation donations while Clinton was sitting Secretary of State. The same group, remember, at the FBI was leading these two investigations. It was led by former FBI agent Peter Strzok. He was overseeing both investigations, one into the Clinton use of an unsecure server and one into Donald Trump's alleged collusion. 
They were treated extremely differently, even though there was no evidence found of wrongdoing for Trump and gross negligence found in Clinton's handling of her unsecured server. Again, I believe, based on my conversations with sources, it is unlikely you will hear any conclusions by John Dorham by November 3rd. If that uh, turns out to be true, that is a terrible disappointment. It is also a broken commitment from Attorney General Barr. As much as I like him, uh, you have to call it as it is. And Attorney General Barr said the American people will know what happened in, in 2016 into 2017 before the election because it's important they know. That wasn't a commitment to, for indictments. It wasn't a commitment even for the report, although it was sort of a commitment for the report. He said they'll know. And if there's no Durham report, I don't know how we'll know other than you continue to have investigative journalists like Paul Sperry providing more information to confirm that you had a straight up coup attempt by the top law enforcement and top spy agency of a sitting president. That's what occurred. And by the way, this is being ignored by, I don't know, 60 percent of the country. 60 percent of the country doesn't care. These are the same people, by the way, don't care, refuse to acknowledge this, continue actually to perpetrate the Trump-Russian collusion lie while talking about peaceful transition of power. And they're so aghast that Trump would not be full-throated in his support for this push for a all-male-in election, the the moving around of uh, deadlines and requirements for mail-in ballots in Pennsylvania and Wisconsin and Michigan elsewhere. So it was the FBI who was colluding with somebody they suspected to be a Russian agent. It was John Brennan at CIA who was cooking the intelligence estimate. Paul Sperry, RealClearInvestigations.com. Intelligence Community Assessment on Russian Activities and Intentions in Recent Elections. The ICA, two weeks before Trump took office, that cast a cloud of suspicion over his presidency. Brennan, reports Sperry, personally edited a crucial section of the intelligence report assigned a political ally who was a Clinton supporter to take the lead role in writing it after other career analysts disputed Brennan's take that Putin intervened in the 2016 election to help Trump. Dissenting an, uh, uh, analysts found that Moscow preferred Clinton because it judged she would work with its leaders, whereas it worried Trump would be too unpredictable. As Secretary of State, Clinton tried to reset relations with Moscow to move them to a more positive and cooperative stage, while Trump campaigned on expanding the U.S. military, which Moscow perceived as a threat. Putin, according to two officials who Sperry talked to, thought Clinton was going to win, viewed Trump as a wild card. Uh, Also, these same analysts, according to a U.S. intelligence official who participated in a 2018 review of spycraft behind the assessment, quote, they complained Brennan took a thesis that Putin supported Trump and decided he was going to ignore dissenting data and exaggerate the importance of that conclusion, even though they said it didn't have any real substance behind it. So there's your director of the CIA cooking it on the one side. You have the FBI, which we talked to with Brett Baer about on Friday. How much coverage did that get over the weekend? The FBI, the subsource for the Steele dossier was somebody who was the subject of an FBI counterintelligence investigation from 2009 to 2011. We know his name. He's Ukrainian. And then we have these text messages that have been unearthed as part of uh, the uh, documents released uh, in association with the Flynn case and the intelligence FBI workers who are they use their internal messaging system, link messaging system. They identify their identities have been blacked out. But these texts, January 5th, 2017, you know, Obama's last two weeks before Obama's last day in office, the um, the they were he was supposed to get a Russian hacking briefing, President elect Trump at the time. 
And the text message, more time needed to build case. What's the word on how O's briefing went? Don't know, but people here are scrambling for info to support certain things, and it's a madhouse. Another said, Trump was right, still not put together. Why do we do this to ourselves? What is wrong with these people? Uh, His briefing was delayed. Trump tweeted out, at the time, the intelligence briefing on so-called Russian hacking was delayed until Friday. Perhaps more time is needed to build a case. Very strange. The FBI, one of the FBI agents, Trump was right, still not put together. Why do we do this to ourselves? What is wrong with these people? Five days later, according to court documents, those same employees texted again with one revealing how we all went, quote, we all went and purchased professional liability insurance. That's how much exposure they thought they had for what was going on at FBI with respect to the incoming administration. What in God's name? And I know I know that, uh, you know, the people that don't like Trump are going to say, I don't care. I don't care because I don't like Trump and I want him gone. So I don't care if they attempted a coup on the president elect of the United States and into his presidency. I should add, I don't care. Not worried about that being a precedent setter. And are you going to lecture me about peaceful transition to uh, power? Uh, This is remarkable made all the more remarkable by the indifference of half to two-thirds of the population. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Lieutenant Colonel Jim Carafano, VP of the Catherine and Shelby Cullum Davis Institute for International Studies at the Heritage Foundation. Jim, am I uh, losing my mind, or is what I said fair? Well, so I, I, have, I have two thoughts. One is, I, I think this does illustrate or illuminate really the failure of the fourth estate of the press to really credibly do their job uh, instead of except blindly accepting a narrative, much like they did before the Iraq war, not trying to objectively investigate, not do the kind of things Woodward and Bernstein did back in the day, but essentially worked on selling a narrative rather than truly doing investigative reporting. I really believe if we'd had fair and impartial investigative reporting all along, we wouldn't be where we are today. And we wouldn't be sitting waiting for a report from the Department of Justice to have a pretty fair idea. I mean, look with all that's come out, despite the fact that the press has failed to do anything. I think the other interesting observation is how, when you think about how much we got done on foreign policy the last four years, and how really kind of fearless the administration was, despite all the distractions and the attacks and everything else, Driving on and doing right policy and not just kind of, you know, reacting or, or trying to cover up you know, to, to deal with the, the press. And the foreign policy accomplishments are actually pretty, pretty impressive. And you think of that, all that's done with a completely adversarial press, which is essentially taking the side of the president's critics. It's, it's remarkable how we've gotten this far. All right, Jim, let's hold it there. When we come back, I want to pick up this conversation about investigations with no timelines. More with Jim Carafano right after this. Show.com.
We're back with the Heritage Foundation's Jim Carafano talking about the Durham investigation potentially not being completed until after the election, per Maria Bartiroma's reporting. And I want to talk about this, you know, investigations without timelines positioning uh, from the Department of Justice and just in general, uh, the idea that uh, they will operate on their own schedule, not an election schedule. I mean, that's fine to a point. But investigations, they decide what the timeline is. And, you know, we have a great case study of this. You know, Comey tried to play this game with the Clinton emails and stuff, get stuff out, and, and he failed miserably. So I, I think this is kind of a no-win situation. So my advice would be when the report is done or the indictments are ready, whatever, that's when you put it out. And then you don't worry about it. Well, well I, I know, but what? Uh, but this prompts the question, what's taking so long? I mean, these, these uh, investigative reporters can put together – this sort of information, you would think that the investigative team of Durham would be uh, much further down the road. And I, I just don't know how yeah. you explain how long this is taking. You don't have to go to a judge, right? Yeah, but, a jury. I, I understood. But, but here, here's the other thing. Let's sort of establish a baseline here. If the reporting is accurate on Brennan and FBI, what well, we know uh, FBI is largely accurate. The Brennan is, you know, unidentified sources, you know, multiple Paul Spears, a good investigative journalist. But let's just assume for the sake of argument that it's accurate. I mean, how do you describe this other than a coup attempt? Well, I mean, the comments on Brennan, I think, are completely consistent with what we know about Brennan. He was a political operative from the beginning. He never treated any of his assignments in the Obama administration other than essentially shilling for the administration. But I'm not sure that's an indictable crime. I, I don't know. And this is, I, I think the difference is, is, is malfeasance and misjudgments and everything else. But the question is, is can you take it to a court of law and convict somebody of an actual crime? You know, I, I think, you know, I, look, I thought you said it best. People know how they're going to vote in this election. They don't need this report to do this. What I want from this report is justice. The one thing we do that makes us a democracy and makes us a real government is in the end, the rule of law trumps everything and prevails. And that's what I want to see happen. Well, I, I know uh, you and me and everybody else. Well, not everybody, but a lot of people, uh, people that uh, people that actually believe in the rule of law and don't think that establishing a precedent that that your CIA director and your senior leadership of the FBI can try a fifth column action against an incoming president and walk away unscathed from it. I mean, if all of this checks out, there are enough tripwires. I mean, you know, Barr has talked about sedition. He's used the S word sedition when it comes right. to. Antifa and organized violence on the streets. How is this different? This is organized violence by other means. But, well, you know, again, we'll have to see, you know, what indictments are set down. What about Ray? I mean, if in a second, if Trump wins re-election, should Christopher Ray go? I mean, you know, I don't know. I mean, I'm a bit conflicted on this. I look at the broad sweep of the FBI, and the more you dig into this, there, there are specific individuals within the FBI who clearly were bad apples. There's no question about that. They they destroyed the reputation of the FBI. They blemished the work of so many good good people that are there. My focus is I want to see those people, all their sins brought to daylight, and if they committed crimes, I want to see them punished. And I don't think the entire FBI's organization should suffer for the work of, of some people. And look, at the end of the day, I blame Comey. You know, even if he didn't commit a crime, all these people worked for him. He was in charge. He was a captain of the ship. He's taken no responsibility for the fact that he had agents gone wild on his watch, and it all happened under his supervision. And, and that's fine. He wants to say he's not a bad guy. I get that. But he failed. And he should look at the American people in the eye and say, I failed you. I let these yahoos run wild. And it's all my fault. And he's never said that. Instead, all he's done is blame Trump. 
Um, before we let you go, I want to get your um, insight on uh, another one of uh, America's enemies, in addition to Brennan and Comey, Chinese communists I'm talking about. We had a uh, Chinese virologist uh, who has um, sought refuge in this country go on Tucker Carlson show last week and talk about the, the virus, COVID-19, being hatched in a lab and being purposely spread by Chinese communists. We have a, an American lawyer named Michael Sanger who's saying the Communist Party has been promoting a, a, an international disinformation camp, campaign to promote nationwide shutdowns in a bid to cripple rival economies. Uh, how much uh, credibility do those uh, do you attach to those assertions at this point? Well, I, I, at this point, I still think there are assertions. You know, to me, the more interesting ones was the arrest of the cop in New York City who was who, who essentially spying on Tibetans for the Chinese government. Mm. That, I think, is just the scab at the top. I mean, there was so much Chinese espionage going on inside the United States. We need to really wake up to that. Now, the other stuff, how they're operationalizing that, I, you know, we've got to systematically unpack that and really understand it. Because, you know, we, we really have to know actually what the nature of the Chinese threat is so we can go after the threat and we're just not chasing phantoms and rivers. But so the thing in New York, that ought to be a wake-up call for a lot of people. He is Lieutenant Colonel Jim Carafano, VP of the Catherine and Shelby Cullum Davis Institute for International Studies at the Heritage Foundation. Jim, thanks as always. The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. Well, we've covered uh, two big topics, the Supreme Court nominee and the coup attempt. More is the evidence piles up against the coup attempt that uh, still awaiting a reckoning. Conversation with Jim Carafano. It's frustrating times. Uh, also, uh, the matter of the election. How about that? Straight up in terms of the mechanics of it. Later in the program, we're going to talk to Congressman Brian Stile from uh, Kenosha to get a little bit of a handle on how that swing state may be playing out and how confident he is in the administration of the election up there in Cheesehead land. But Project Veritas, James O'Keefe and his investigative team on the job in Minnesota. Fortunately, they had the help of a whistleblower who uh, directed their attention to a seemingly illegal ballot harvesting program going on in Minneapolis and going on at the direction of political operatives that are connected to brotherly love spice. That would be one Ilhan Omar, member of the Socialist Spice Girls. The whistleblower introduced you to his name is Omar Jamal. I think he was both Ilhan Omar and, 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 and Jamal, but I think he was more with Ilhan Omar. My name is Omar Jamal. I'm right now part of the Ramsey County Sheriff's Office, uh, but also I'm the chair of the Somali Watchdog Group, and I have been involved in the community for the last 20 years. And he uh, references uh, both Representative Omar, her operatives, as well as this uh, city councilman in Minnesota who was recently elected, who was uh, one of the defund police city councilmen. And, and, and then to James O'Keefe, as he always does, does a nice job of sort of laying out what's happening and providing a concrete example of it. Uh, here's uh, an interview that was done, translated. By the way, uh, the whistleblower here, also of Somali extraction, an interview here with another Somali immigrant with a, one of O'Keefe's reporters asking exactly what 
these operatives are doing when they come to Somali, the Somali immigrant community, and uh, attempt to essentially direct their vote. Who is the one filling out the absentee ballots? People who work uh, with, like, Ilhan Omar and other candidates work for them. Ilhan has a handful of people that work for her. They came to us to our apartments. They tell us that this year you're going to vote for Ilhan. You don't go nowhere, you stay home, we will go to fill out for your absentee ballot. When it comes, we will come and get it. You just don't go nowhere, you stay here. So, they fill out for us. And then they, they do it by themselves. So there you go. Uh, from application to actual ballot, you sign, the operative fills it out, you get paid as soon as you sign, and that's how it's done. Well, that's illegal both, uh, I I believe, under Minnesota law with respect to that specific sort of ballot harvesting, as well as federal law, filling out, uh, having somebody else fill out your ballot. Voter fraud. I know voter fraud doesn't exist, doesn't happen according to the left, but that's what it is. And um, in the video report by James O'Keefe, they have this guy named Liban Mohammed driving around in his car bragging about collecting hundreds of ballots that are strewn across his dashboard and the seat in his car. He's, he's bragging about money, 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 and you need money to run elections, and this is how it's done, and ballots are like money. Well, they are in the sense that uh, they're being paid. It's not just for uh, Mike Bloomberg uh, with an assist from Lon, uh, LeBron James for felons in Florida. Uh, and another uh, specific example to make this concrete, although that in, the gentleman who was interviewed makes it pretty concrete, but where they're focusing, you know, surgical highest return for your time and the easiest to orchestrate because this is not sophisticated, but it does take some organizational skills. Cedar Riverside Apartments is the case study profiled in uh, O'Keefe's report. Uh, And uh, these these public housing projects, senior towers, and the uh, individual identified, and this is the the work of O'Keefe with the help from the whistleblower, the person identified as writing point in this particular apartment complex, is a man named Ali Guinea, who is the deputy director of Ilhan Omar's Minneapolis office. At the end of this street, yes. there's three towers called one tower. Okay. And it's all seniors, and they took every ballot. Every ballot. They just every take them from them. Every single ballot. Knock on the door and say, your ballots come, give it to me, give it to me. They don't even pay them for it. They just take it. No. And the ones that didn't vote on ballots, the young people and the women and stuff, they were paying cash, cash, cash. They were getting bags of money the last one week here to, to drive people. And when you vote and they mark you off, then you get in the van, they give you a cash. The money was brought by Ali Ghani. Ali Ghani is the campaign chair of Ilhan. He's a staffer in her office. Ali Ghani. Ghani. Was coordinating everything. Ali is uh, who's uh, deputy director for Ilhan Omar here in, 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 in Minneapolis, is part of people who are using cash to get votes. And uh, as you heard from uh, whistleblower, the whistleblower here, Omar Jamal, he also went on to say, look, you, you have to understand there's a lot of people here that are first generation immigrants. So they don't know what they're doing is wrong. 
They're not sophisticated in terms of understanding what you can or can't do in, in an election, particularly in an election that's where the rules are changing like uh, they have been here with mail-in ballots. Uh, and so uh, hopefully this report alerts the Minnesota GOP as well as election officials to intervene with respect to these ballot harvesting programs. But it speaks to how a program like that in a concentrated area controlled, dominated by one party, one community, really, could potentially have an impact on the entire race because it could potentially have an impact on the outcome in Minnesota, uh, a state that President Trump narrowly lost four years ago, thinks is in play. They think they can win this time around putting resources there. That's probably a good thing because it's probably going to need some resources from the federal level, from the national Trump campaign in order to stop this sort of fraud, real and attempted, that's occurring in Minneapolis with Ilhan Omar operatives. And so this is, again, the same conversation we've been having for weeks, which is it's going to vary not just state by state, but locality by locality, community by community. And not every place has the same strength of presence by a Republican Party or by the the, the national Trump campaign. And so this is why these extensions on counts and these changing of the rules last minute provide you know, opportunity for chicanery, provide that much more slack in the system, make things less reliable and perhaps more willy nilly on election night and subsequent to election night. Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the program, and I want to do a little bit of a COVID hit here to couple throughout the program today. This comes to us from a teacher who is a parent in the Nutria school system in a wealthy suburban Chicago. And the reason um, I want you to hear from her is because this is a person who is inclined to be supportive of the teachers and the teachers union, inclined to be supportive of the institutional power centers in this K through 12 system. She herself is a longtime teacher, not in the system, but she's familiar with it and she's familiar with the lesson plans and instruction, as you'll hear. But I just wonder if this may be this testimony at a the recent school board meeting from this teacher. Uh, her name is Audrey Klein. I wonder if Miss Klein's attitude may be indicative of a turn that's starting to happen, where people wanted to be deferential to the authorities, but that deference only lasts for so long, particularly when the evidence no longer suggests that the deference is warranted. Listen to Audrey Klein. So my name is Audrey Klein. I live in Wilmette. I have a few kids here at New Trier High School. I've also, I'm also a teacher, and this is the start of my 33rd year. I teach reading, writing, organization, and study skills. And I've told the parents that I work with and my neighbors and friends that our tax dollars are well spent on new Trier teachers. And the lessons I've seen from the teachers, are ex- most of them are excellent. And I've advocated for new Trier teachers by supporting competitive salaries to recruit superior leaders. But I don't see leadership right now from the new Trier teachers. I see a teacher's union failing to put the needs of the children first. Our job as teachers is to serve the children. This job isn't here for us. We are here for the kids. They are not at risk, and most teachers are under the age of 49 and are healthy here at New Trier. The children are more likely to die of the flu than of COVID-19. For the love of science, 
teachers open up the school. 88% of the parents voted to have the school open, and 12% chose remote learning. Let them stay home and open it up for the most of us. For the teachers that are sick or at risk, I volunteer to take their spot. We will find other teachers to work in the school for those who choose to stay home. And to the school board and to the administration, as a person who pays some of the bills around here, I am sorry. I am sorry for what you've had to endure this last year. It's unforgivable. And I actually understand how hard you work. Thank you for fighting for our children. Isn't it interesting? I mean, again, I just repeat for emphasis, she's coming from a place of being deferential to the school board, deferential to teachers, teachers union. She can't take it anymore, the teachers who won't go back to the classroom. She understands, a teacher herself, the importance of in-person instruction. She understands what's happening not just to her kids but to other kids that she teaches, and she understands probably what happens, generally speaking, uh, in these sorts of situations over time with kids in terms of the uh, decline in their learning as compared to what they should be learning, what they would be learning, and the rate at which they would be learning in a classroom setting. I, I just wonder, you know, attach Trump's name to it and, and, and it charges it. But just on the merits, I wonder if these lockdown and bus politicians and lockdown and bus teachers unions are starting to lose the narrative even among many of their sympathizers. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of the Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us at danproftshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes, Twitter, at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. Jamie Coney Barrett on Saturday. I love the United States, and I love the United States Constitution. Well, that's a good start. And then you put together an outstanding legal career around it, and um, you wind up on the Supreme Court, even though a place she never expected to be, and perhaps at relatively young age. Uh, also, she might not have expected to be there, but for the aid of all of these politicians who are wants to characterize or suborn the characterization of her as some sort of religious zealot. Because if it weren't for Harry Reid nuking the filibuster on uh, district court judges in 2013, if it weren't for the threat to filibuster the Gorsuch nomination and every other Trump nomination, if it weren't for the exchange with DiFi during her confirmation hearing for the Seventh Circuit, if it wasn't for what Democrats did in the Kavanaugh confirmation, uh, there's a very good chance that uh, Amy Coney Barrett, not only would she not be a Supreme Court justice, which she's going to be, she wouldn't be on the uh, Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals. So thank you, Democrats, or for those Democrats who are aghast at what has transpired. You have yourselves to thank. Harvard Law School professor Noah Feldman. I disagree with much of her judicial philosophy, but he concludes, I'm going to be confident that Barrett is going to be a good justice, maybe even a great one, even if I disagree with her all the way. Yeah, that's sort of from the Scalia-Ginsburg school of how you deal in adjudicating legal matters and how you conceive of people who disagree with you philosophically on particular issues. Uh, this from an op-ed, uh, or in addition to, I should say, an op-ed from Nicole Garnett. 
who is a professor of law at the University of Notre Dame. I've known Amy Coney Barrett for over 20 years. Her intellect and heart are unrivaled. Since joining the faculty at Notre Dame, she has made her mark as a leading constitutional law scholar and one of the best and most challenging teachers. Students quickly learn to be prepared to answer tough questions about subjects ranging from the evidentiary issues in the movie My Cousin Vinny, it's a great case study, to the complexities of statutory law uh, interpretation. They are all in awe of her which is honestly more than a little humbling for the rest of us professors. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Randy Barnett, Georgetown Law Professor, author of Our Republican Constitution, Securing the Liberty and Sovereignty of We the People. He loves this country and he loves the Constitution too. Randy, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me on. So the nomination of Amy Coney Barrett and how that's being received in the legal community, including the professorate of which you're a part. Well, I'm quarantined in central Virginia like everyone else, so therefore I don't see anybody except my wife and my 92-year-old mom and my 97-year-old father-in-law who we're caring for. But I'm a huge fan of Amy. I know her and think she was a terrific pick. She's everything that the people that are praising her say she is, really smart. She will be intellectually able to hold her own with the best of the justices, and that means doing one-on-one with Elena Kagan when necessary and schooling some of her uh, more conservative brethren when that's necessary. She's great. Now, I just want to say, she and I do not agree about everything. She was invited to do a symposium on my book, Our Republican Constitution, and wrote a piece in which she agreed with some of what I said and disagreed with the thrust of what I was arguing for, which was against judicial deference to legislatures. She's much more in the Scalia mold than I am with respect to judicial deference and stare decisis and precedent. And what she's going to be criticized for, what she's been criticized for in the last news cycle, are her views on the Affordable Care Act. But she expressed those views in that article, criticizing my approach, but saying she understands why I was disappointed in just Chief Justice Roberts' view in the Obamacare case, because she shares the view that that was a bad ruling. So that's what she's getting hammered for. Where she agreed with me is where she's getting hammered for. Just on that topic, since this is what Democrats are caterwauling about, this is about overturning Obamacare. That case that's coming before the court next term may not be the strongest case. There may be even a question about the uh, state's ability led by Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton to present a harm to the states that would merit adjudication in their direction, merit a decision in their direction. What's your handle on the strength of the case that's even before the court, the likelihood that's not going to change much about Obamacare legally? I think that the argument that's being made is an interesting one. I think half of it's going to prevail. That is, I think since the tax was zeroed out, the saving construction of Justice Roberts is no longer available to save the rest of the Affordable Care Act. But the case is going to turn on the issue of severability and whether the zeroed out tax or penalty provision can be separated or severed from the rest of the act. That's really what the argument's going to be about. I'm a lot less confident about how that decision is going to go. And first of all, she doesn't need to recuse herself because she expressed an opinion about a case that has been decided. After all, if she has to do that, then she's not going to be able to opine about no, anything of course. Of at, at the upcoming hearings. They can't ask her about any case ever. If that's going to disqualify her, I, I don't know that there's five votes now for that challenge. And I don't know that her vote would change it, nor do I think she's particularly anxious to sit on that case. Well, so if she recused herself, even though she doesn't have to, I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, but that, that severability issue, not to get to, too into the weeds, but since this is an important case and you want to temper expectations here in the public, that severability issue, There's been some recent cases that are sort of on point with the severability issue, even though they're not Obamacare related. And uh, you've had uh, Kavanaugh as as well as Alito um, essentially uh, addressing the severability issue in a way that would uphold Obamacare if they addressed it similarly in the Obamacare case. 
I take your word for that. One of the reasons I don't like opining about cases because I'm not an expert on severability doctrine. And that's what I think the case turns on. So I'm as interested in hearing your view on that as uh, I am giving an opinion on that. All right. Um, I wanted to get to one other thing. I t- we uh, spoke with John Lott about this last week, uh, this uh, dissent that she wrote, 37-page dissent she wrote, which I actually did read in a uh, gun case in Wisconsin. It's such a uh, – I mean, this is what people are talking about when they talk about her legal mind and she, the historical context she gives and, and, and just the, the depth that she goes into, 37-page dissent, to provide some opportunity for depth. And I, I just thought one of the arguments she made is such an important argument, sort of I could feel Scalia's mind working there too or his mentorship influencing her. But this idea, all felons are banned from owning guns. She argues that the law in Wisconsin was both over-inclusive and at the same time under-inclusive. Uh, you know, it was over-inclusive. It includes nonviolent crimes that should be treated perhaps different than other felonies. It was also under-inclusive in that it doesn't contemplate uh, misdemeanor charges that may uh, give rise to consideration for banning gun ownership because of the, the threatening of the of the public that was connected to a particular misdemeanor charge. And I, I think it's sort of that those types of opinions that have won her plaudits from, you know, from Noah Feldman, from Harvard, all the way to, you know, the more expected uh, uh, sources like conservative law professors and, and students and judges. Well, it's a very middle-of-the-road position that she's taking here. And just to fill in the missing piece that your listeners don't know, may not know, is it's about felons in possession laws, which ban felons from having firearms. And her argument is that what the state is entitled to do is to keep firearms out of the hands of demonstrably dangerous people. That's something that's within the police power of the states. When regulating the right to keep and bear arms, you have to be demonstrably dangerous. Um, And some felons don't uh, some felonies don't involve any danger to the public and some other indicia of of danger like misdemeanors uh, are not included. That's the over inclusive under inclusive. But notice a she doesn't take for granted that there's a felons in possession exception just because it was mentioned in Heller. That's number one, which Mm -hmm. is a good sign. Mm -hmm. That paragraph by Justice Scalia was not the was not his finest hour. Might have been put there for Justice Kennedy. Who knows? Um, uh, Secondly, uh, she uh, is protective of gun rights, but thirdly, uh, she allows, as I think all judges today would allow, that so- that gun rights, like all other rights, need to be re- can be regulated, but those regulations need to be reasonable insofar as they're not just being put in place because people in power don't like the right and wish to discourage its, ex- its exercise or raise the cost of exercising that right. Right. No, I, I, I appreciate that explanation. And, and but I mean, th- this is the sort of opinion, though, sort of the measure, right, the measure, the restraint that you that I think people are suggesting you you get used to hearing and seeing from Amy Coney Barrett. Yeah. And also, I mean, for somebody who's a gun rights, a gun owner and a concealed carry permit holder, um, I, I am actually this is an issue that I care about and I'm going to judge judicial nominees on whether they care about it. And uh, like many of the judges that uh, Donald Trump put on the bench, she is she understands the Second Amendment is a real thing. And lower court just judges are engaged in civil disobedience against the Supreme Court on this issue. So let me just say that uh, people always ask me what I think the court what's how her presence on the court is going to change things. Mostly, I won't predict because I don't know. In this case, I'll predict that I think that the justices are now going to step in. There is now a fifth vote for stepping in and starting to uh, uh, discipline lower court judges to follow Heller, follow McDonald's and protect the individual right to arms. 
And uh, she meets uh, the Randy Barnett rule, which is she has a record on this issue, so you can anticipate where she'll be on the high court. Professor Randy Barnett, Georgetown Law Professor, author of Our Republican Constitution, Securing the Liberty and Sovereignty of We the People. Randy Barnett, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Take care. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. We're going to take a little uh, ACB break before uh, returning to uh, Amy Coney Bear when uh, Daniel McCarthy from uh, Fund for American Studies joins us uh, at the bottom of the hour. Uh, and I'm going to ask him why he thinks uh, GOP nominees move left so much of the time. GOP Supreme Court, GOP nominated Supreme Court justices who are confirmed get on the bench and move left, while those nominated by a Democrat president confirmed more often than not stay left. And a sort of a, a similar question uh, that's posed by uh, Brian Kaplan the uh, great uh, professor of economics at George Mason University. We've spoken with him about his uh, bestseller, The Case Against Education. But uh, he uh, writes over at the econlib.org blog about uh, the missing right-wing firms. There's a market opportunity for firms to cater to conservatives, to have conservative corporate culture rather than sort of the dominant uh, progressive corporate culture with uh, diversity consultants and liberal HR departments and so on and so forth. So why don't we see that manifested in the marketplace? And uh, Brian Kaplan has a few ideas on why that may be. Uh, Well, it's an interesting thought experiment, uh, much like the Supreme Court justice thought experiment. So let's tackle this one first. Professor Brian Kaplan, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Glad to be here. Um, so, yes, you, you, it's just very much like, you know, why aren't there conservative screenwriters in Hollywood? Why aren't there conservatives here and conservatives there? We, you would think that conservatives are a very insular, uh, small percentage of the population, but it, it turns out they're substantial enough that uh, they would seemingly create profit opportunities, as you say, discrimination, you point out discrimination does, generally speaking. And so um, your theories on why we don't see what you're looking for. Right. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, I start off with maybe it's the facts are just wrong. So, you know, so for example, one story is that there's just a lot of industries where conservatives already are running the show, and we just don't hear about them very much. Uh, so, and I mean, I had, you know, and of course, you know, being in academia, it's easy to lose sight of the fact that most of the world is not nearly as left wing as academia. So, I do take this seriously. Uh, but still, when I talk to people in a wide variety of fields, almost all of them say that. You know, it's very rare to see any actual affirmatively right-wing firms. There are firms that are less left-wing where they don't drive it home as much, but it's really hard to find any businesses in the U.S. outside of ones that are think tanks or something like that where the business actually affirms right-wing values of any kind. Uh, so that's where I have two other stories that I talked about. So one is just that uh, you know, right-wingers just care less. Mm-hmm. So, and probably something to do with being older, right? So if you were like a young left-wing firebrand, then you probably actually get very upset if the firm is not is doing or saying anything that you don't approve of. Whereas 
probably a lot of you know, people who are more right wing, uh, tending to, especially tending to be older, are more likely to say, oh, I'm too old to worry about this kind of stuff. It's just politics. So I mean, that would be one reason why. Although in the end, I think a big part of it really is the law. So, you know, discrimination laws on the books, and it would be very hard for a firm to get away with having corporate propaganda saying this is a firm where people are treated on their merits, right? And, you know, and just to blanket the firm with that. So rather than saying, you know, like, you'll be looking around constantly for discrimination, there's a firm that said, you know, we don't think we do. We think we do a great job, and we don't appreciate complaining around here. That, would, that does sound fairly likely to get you sued and in trouble. Well, you know, I wonder, too, if it's uh, where people take their cultural cues from. I mean, a lot of people go through these universities that come out conservative, but they recognize they're in the distinct minority. So you sort of are conditioned to expect if I go work on Wall Street or a big firm or pretty much uh, any other industry with few exceptions, I'm likely to be outnumbered. I'm I'm used to that. I was always outnumbered at school. I'm still going to be outnumbered. So that's just uh, built into the price. Right. Although, I mean, like you were saying at the beginning, if you just look at the overall demographics of the population, you know, a good third of the population seems to be conservative. Yeah. So the idea, so the idea that that they are truly a small minority is just crazy. There's just way too many of them to be a small minority. So that's why I think you've either got to go to a story where they just care less. Right? Yeah. So, which again could yeah. it could be because. You've been, like you've gone through so many years of school where you've been trained just to keep your views to yourself that you no longer want to talk anymore. So that's one story. And again, you know, like remember, you know, like you know, markets are responding to the preferences that people actually have, and a key part of it, if a preference you won't act on, isn't much of a preference at all. So you know, like if left wingers are willing to actually not only complain but change jobs if they're not happy with the politics of the firm. And right wingers basically just say, "Well, that's how things go." Then employers aren't going to be very responsive to people like that. Of well, course. yeah, and also you you point out too. I mean, in addition to the prospect, maybe I, I don't know. This is not. I don't have any empirical data to support this. It's just sort of intuition. But maybe those that have a leftist philosophy are more likely to be litigious, uh, as well as you point mm-hmm. out, uh, those with a leftist philosophy more likely to engage in boycotts than than uh, conservatives. And so that creates a, a different dynamic, too, in terms of the consequences for not uh, hewing the, le- the liberal orthodoxy. Yeah, yeah I'm sure the, you know, the litigious point is crucial because, of course, the law just doesn't give uh, conservatives many, very many chances to sue. So uh, by violating left-wing orthodoxy is a lot more uh, opens up opportunities for lawsuits much more effectively than violating right-wing orthodoxy under current laws. So, right. Being a conservative so yeah, is so, not being a member of a yeah. protected class, right? Yes. Now, I mean, interestingly, there are actually a few places, including Washington, D.C., where political discrimination is officially illegal. Although, given that it's a very liberal city, I, it still seems unlikely that a conservative would make much, get much headway in the courts. But you know, according to the letter of the law, they could. I wonder if it's also too like, you know, unless you're in a machine shop or something, the culture is so driven by um, and what you know and what's cool in culture. So driven by leftist dominated sectors, entertainment and the Mm -hmm. arts and and media. And so, you know, you just even if you're not technically outnumbered, you feel outnumbered because their presence is is ubiquitous and and in some some cases overwhelming. Yeah, you know, especially. Like one thing that seems you know, very true today is just the left is more vocal, which you know can yeah. create the illusion of being 
much more common than, than you really are because you know, this is this is what statisticians call selection bias. If all the people of one view talk about it and the people of the other view don't, if you look at what people are saying, it will appear that only one view has any supporters. Uh, but that's not uh, what's really going on. Again, you know, like you know, the real question would be if employers, you know, people like employers should be smart enough to figure this out. So why is it that they would even require people to go and voice their views? Why not just give people what they want without them having to really ask for it, you know, which is you know, common in so many, like so many lines of business. You know, for example, very few people want to go and loudly say that they want adult diapers. Right? It's embarrassing. Right. And yet there's a whole industry that sells them adult diapers discreetly without making a big deal out of it. So you think employers would just be very good at figuring out a way of giving people things that they want but don't want to say they want. Yeah, it's it. Yeah, it is a it is a, a bit of a conundrum. I I don't know. I you know it, I, I those uh, suppositions you offer to probably come as close as anything to approximating you know in maybe to varying degrees the uh, the reason the landscape is how it is. Brian Kaplan, professor of economics at George Mason University, New York Times bestselling author, The Case Against Education. Professor Kaplan, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Take care. One love feeds the fire, one heart burns desire, one bell who's crying now. Listen to podcasts of the show at danproftshow.com. Welcome back to the show, and uh, Daniel McCarthy, writing over at uh, Spectator, spectator.us, suggests that the nomination of uh, Amy Coney Barrett has produced both hopes and fears that are far-fetched. Fears far-fetched. Hmm. Maybe he's talking about uh, Jamie Smith when he talks about far-fetched fears. Jamie Smith, writing at uh, HuffPost, I fear that American citizens are inching closer to living in a theocracy or dictatorship and that the checks meant to prevent this from happening are close to eroding beyond repair. When Justice Ginsburg died, I knew immediately that action was needed on a scale we have not uh, seen before. Our democracy has become so fragile that the loss of one of the last guardians of common sense and decency in government less than two months before a pivotal election has put our civil and reproductive rights in danger like never before. And so you guessed it. What's the... Obvious conclusion, yes, Jamie Smith writes, I have turned to Satanism. So uh, to Dana McCarthy's point, uh, not everybody is coping with it as well as everybody else. For more on all this, we're pleased to be joined by Daniel McCarthy, director of the Robert Novak Fellowship Program at the Fund for American Studies and editor of Modern Age, a conservative review. Daniel, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me on. Yeah, so um, people turning to Satanism as a result of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's uh, uh, passing. I, I, I suppose that may be one of the things that you suggest is a, a uh, the illustration of somebody who is engaged in far-fetched fear-mongering on herself uh, in response to the, you know, both the passing and the nomination of Coney Barrett. It's such a great illustration of the emotional fragility as well as the overactive imaginings of uh, so many progressives. Uh, they really do believe that uh, the confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett is going to usher in some sort of handmaid's tale scenario and that, um, you know, suddenly you're going to have a kind of theocracy built here in the United States. 
And of course, uh, that's not only completely untrue, but even some of the things that conservatives can, you know, sort of realistically hope for in terms of more conservative rulings from uh, Justice Barrett, and uh, especially on questions, you know, relating to Roe v. Wade, um, it's it's unlikely that we'll see the kind of dramatic changes that the left is most afraid of. Uh, things move gradually and slowly on the Supreme Court, uh, no matter who's on it. We were talking about this uh, earlier in the hour with Randy Barnett from Georgetown Law, uh, as you know, and. Um, you know, he was suggesting the same thing. We were talking specifically about the Obamacare case that's going to be before the court next term and how that may play out, um, you know, despite what you hear, the fear mongering you hear from Democrats right now, that this is all an effort to overturn Obamacare. And, um, uh, you know, and, and without getting into too much of the uh, legal minutia, the bottom line is it may not necessarily be the strongest case that uh, attorneys general from around the states could have presented. And and it may be, as you suggest about the court generally, a case of more incrementalism uh, on the matter of Obamacare. That's true. And also, you know, we've seen indications over the past a couple of terms that some of the existing conservative justices may not be as conservative as, um, you know, the left fears or as the right hopes. So Justice Roberts has shown that he's willing to triangulate. And of course, he's voted before to save uh, Obamacare. And, uh, of course, you had uh, uh, Neil Gorsuch earlier this year uh, provide a rather shocking uh, decision in the uh, Bostock case, which uh, conservatives were quite uh, dismayed by, which uh, he basically extended the definition of sex in the 1964 um, Civil Rights Act to apply to uh, sexuality as well, uh, which is clearly uh, certainly not what the drafters of the law had in mind. uh, But Gorsuch, uh, you know, has adopted what is a very 21st century and even quite progressive uh, view of what the law means in terms of discrimination. And that doesn't even begin to address John Roberts and what's come of him since, uh, well, from the Obamacare decision forward. That's right. Yeah, Roberts has needed to show that he is a bit of a triangulator. He seems to be uh, someone who trims his rulings and kind of decides what he's going to do in part uh, in order to try to preserve what he thinks of as the prestige of the court uh, within elite opinion. And that means having decisions that are not as uh, shocking to liberal sensibilities as, uh, you know, a, uh, well, a Chief Justice Scalia or a Chief Justice Thomas might have been willing to produce. Uh, when we come back with Daniel McCarthy, I, I want to um, a- ask this question that bedevils conservatives. Uh, why is it so often conservatives are disappointed by justices who don't turn out to be as conservative as advertised? And then it happens so much less frequently on the other side with uh, Democrat presidents nominating very liberal judges who turn out to be very liberal as advertised. More with Daniel McCarthy. He is the uh, director of the Robert Novak Fellowship Program at the Fund for American Studies. I'm a graduate. Not of that, but of the Fund for American Studies generally. And editor of Modern Age, a conservative review. We'll be right back with more. The Dan Proft Show. Well, 
Welcome back to the program. And uh, one of the uh, best op-eds written in the uh, wake of the Amy Coney Barrett nomination over the weekend comes from a a former student of hers at Notre Dame Law School, where she, by all accounts, was uh, a beloved figure. This is a particularly uh, compelling case. Laura Woke, W-O-L-K, not W-O-K-E. She arrived in Notre Dame in 2013. She writes this over to firstthings.com. Like any new law student, my head swirled with hopes, thoughts, dreams, and fears. But unlike many other students, I also needed to single-handedly ensure I had access to the tools and technologies necessary for me to succeed as a completely blind person. She writes how things got off on a bumpy start. She didn't have the technology she needed, and so she turned to Professor ACB for help. She writes, does Miss Woke, of the reaction she got from Amy Coney Barrett. She did not merely help me to readjust the burden on my own shoulders. She took it from me and carried it herself. I will never forget the moment when she looked at me from across her desk and said coolly and matter-of-factly, Laura, this is not your problem anymore. It's mine. Laura writes about how, as somebody with a disability, that uh, is an unusual thing, and it, it sounds like a minor thing, but it's not a minor thing for her. And Amy Coney Barrett fulfilled her commitment to make it her problem and solve the problem, which she did. Woke goes on to say, three years into our mentorship during my last semester of law school, I once again found myself at Professor Baird's office door. We had planned to talk about my fledgling plans to apply to clerk for Supreme Court justice, but she recounts how she had a, a health scare that meant she was... Um, planning on having to undergo and recover from multiple eye surgeries. And she was worried about her grades because, you know, she needed obviously high marks to be able to be under consideration for Supreme Court justice. Well, the upshot is Amy Coney Barrett helped her navigate those waters as well. She went on to succeed that semester. And she writes, by God's grace, to become the first blind woman to clerk on the Supreme Court. She continues, the warmth and compassion that Judge Barrett has shown me on so many occasions flow from the same wellspring of faith for which she is now so excoriated. The ease with which she donates her time and energy to serving others comes from years of loving the Lord with her entire heart, mind, and strength and loving her neighbor as herself. And for a young disabled woman like me struggling to find my footing and place in this world, that faith has made all the difference. Pretty powerful testimonial for a more review on Amy Coney Bear. Pleased to be rejoined by Daniel McCarthy, director of the Robert Novak Fellowship Program at the Fund for American Studies, editor of Modern Age, a conservative review. Uh, and Daniel, uh, before we get to the, the question I posed before the break, um, you know, a testimonial like that from a student uh, with Amy Coney Barrett, just a law professor at the time, not knowing she was going to be a Seventh Circuit nominee, not knowing she was going to be a Supreme Court nominee, uh, says something about character and some of the hysterics directed at her character, doesn't it? It really does. And, you know, the testimonials to Amy Coney Barrett's character are coming from across the aisle as well. So Noah Feldman, who's a professor at uh, Harvard Law School and is himself, you know, a progressive, he had clerked with Amy Coney Barrett about 20 years ago, and uh, he gives her nothing but a, a glowing recommendation. Even though he's politically across the aisle from her, he says that she's a person of great character and integrity and also of principled, uh, you know, sort of jurisprudence, which, you know, has actually owned earned Feldman a lot of very critical attacks uh, coming from the left on Twitter and in the media uh, because they don't like the idea of somebody speaking up for Amy Coney Barrett, even as a person, even simply talking about her qualifications as a judge. You know, this idea of character is something that the progressives just can't accept that people of good character can possibly have views that are different from their own. 
Right. You're supposed to be engaged in the kind of nonsense that uh, Ibram Kendi, a.k.a. Henry Rogers, is engaged in, which is to say that she's a white colonizer because she adopted two Haitian children or to openly ask questions that some Dem operatives have as to whether or not she's engaged in human trafficking of some sort. I mean, the most ridiculous things you can say they're saying. It's absolutely repellent. Yeah. And we've seen, um, you know, more than one uh, person, including Kendi, on Twitter say these kinds of things and ask these questions about her children. She has seven children, five of whom are biological children, two of whom have been adopted from Haiti. By all accounts, this is a wonderful, you know, sort of integrated family that's sort of a model for uh, the kind of relations we'd like to see America have. Uh, I wanted to uh, go back to the question I posed before we had to break for a moment there, and that is conservatives. They're excited about Amy Coney Barrett, but they're also bringing a healthy level of skepticism to the table because of John Roberts, because of Anthony Kennedy, because of so many instances over the years where a nominee of a Republican president has turned out to be something less than the originalist that they were marketed to be. The question I get all the time is, you know, why is it often so often so much more often the case that a nominee from a Republican president moves left and a nominee from a Democrat president stays left? Well, progressives control the commanding heights. They have most of the prestige media on their side. They have almost all of academia on their side. And so as a result, within sort of elite circles, having a progressive opinion, which marks you out as a good person, makes you someone who gets praised by the media instead of condemned by the media. This has a psychological effect on justices. And we perhaps like to think of justices as being completely insulated from these kinds of currents of opinion. But it's really not the case. I mean, judges are human beings just like everyone else. They want approval. They want praise. And they want to be, you know, sort of go down in history as having a, uh, you know, an acceptable legacy. And if the progressives are the ones who control the history, if they're the ones who control the, you know, sort of present day history that takes the form of journalism, then they're the ones who control the standards and criteria by which the justices are going to be measured. And the justices are painfully aware of that. It's it's I, I get that. But, you know, it's still I just leaves me unsatisfied um, it just because, I mean, you think that uh, no matter what uh, Justice Thomas does or no matter what uh, Justice Scalia did, that uh, those same leftists who may be writing some of the history, if not all of it, are going to treat them any better than they treated Scalia upon the occasion of his death, for goodness sakes. I just it's amazing the um, these great legal minds um, and they know what they're getting into and they see it playing out with other justices. And yet uh, the same thing happens again and again. Well, I think, you know, Anthony Kennedy is a prime example here. So Kennedy was, you know, a swing justice. He had been appointed by a Republican, but wound up uh, siding with uh, progressives as often as with the conservative side of the court. You know, Kennedy received a lot of praise from the media. He was, you know, sort of made out to be a kind of titan of jurisprudence. Now, he was, you know, sort of, uh, if he were still, he'd be surprised to see, I think, perhaps uh, how his uh, reputation has developed, uh, you know, since he's uh, stepped off the court. But in general, he benefited, I think, from the way he uh, became a swing justice and tried to you know, be a middleman, so to speak, and uh, has generally received a lot more praise than someone like Scalia, who I think was a much more formidable intellect on the court, but who, of course, was sufficiently originalist and sufficiently conservative, as we might say, that the media and uh, the academy have generally uh, not sung his praises. Daniel McCarthy, director of the Robert Novak Fellowship Program at the Fund for American Studies and editor of Modern Age, a conservative review. Daniel, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thank you.
listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the show. Uh, getting back to COVID, Tony Fauci was interviewed by a gay rights activist, and he was asked about this back and forth between Redfield and Dr. Scott Atlas, his public disagreement with Redfield about the level of immunity that may be present in the public because of cross-reactive immunity. And you can't just look at those that had the infections and have antibodies. There's studies that suggest a greater percentage of the population may be immune than just the antibody test would reveal. Fauci, uh, continuing to fan the flames of the disagreement within the ranks, didn't uh, like Scott Atlas publicly repudiating CDC. I thought that it was extraordinarily inappropriate for him in a press conference like that to contradict the director of CDC. And then what has happened is that, you know, he's a smart guy, no doubt about it, but he tends to cherry pick data. And for every time he says that, I can show you a paper, uh, some of which have just literally come out in the next in the past few days that show that this issue of if you look at antibodies that people developed against coronaviruses that are common cold, they don't cross react. Yes, I'm glad to see here. Tony Fauci finally say, oh, the science isn't settled. There's studies coming out all the time. Some peer reviewed, some not that say contradictory things. That's right. That's true. But what Scott Atlas said is 100 percent true as well. The indication is that the immunity level in the population may be much greater than just looking at those who have uh, antibodies per the testing. And there's another a study out, again, not peer reviewed, this from uh, the Department of Immunology and Microbiology at the Scripps Research Institute in La Jolla, California, this over the weekend uh, at uh, biorxiv.org, that suggests the same thing that Scott Atlas suggested last week. Uh, the results suggest that pre-existing immunity to endemic coronaviruses should be considered in evaluating antibody responses to COVID-19. The takeaway is that, yes, uh, there's the real possibility, as uh, Tyler Cohen noted in his blog, uh, Margin Revolution. But look, the evidence continues to mount that this there is a there there to this conversation. He's cherry picking characterizations, as Tony Fauci, when he suggests uh, something that Scott Atlas didn't say. Herd immunity. Nobody's saying that the virus is done. We're just trying to go in the direction of what we know to be true and raise issues that suggest maybe we're better along in terms of the percentage of the population that still is at risk of exposure. It's not 90 percent. It's something less than that. Is it 25 uh, percent? Probably not. But let's consider all of these aspects to what we know to be true and what we're still trying to figure out to be true. Frankly, it'd be nice if Tony Fauci had a little bit more humility, generally speaking, as he shows here to some extent by conceding Scott Atlas is a smart guy, it would have been a little bit better if epidemiologists, infectious disease experts like Fauci would have been more humble about what they didn't know when they didn't know it all the way along, wouldn't have been. You want to talk about contradictions? Yeah, you know, the science is contradicting each other. The decision making by Tony Fauci has contradicted itself over the last six months. Of course it has, because this was a novel coronavirus. And so the research continues. And the discussion continues. And unfortunately, the politics continues. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers. 
fixers and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us at danproftshow.com. That is the website. You also find the podcast there as you do on Spotify and iTunes. Twitter, at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. Joe Biden says uh, Trump is a liar, lies repeatedly, not very smart. Uh, when uh, he calls Trump a liar on stage tomorrow night, I assume that moment will happen. Boy, does Trump have a ready-made arsenal to deploy if he so chooses. And here's another one. I got started out of a HBCU, historically black college university, Delaware State. Now, I don't want to hear anything negative about Delaware State. He, he said that during a October, 19, October 2019 town hall. Or you can just have a spokesman for the college comment and a spokesman for Delaware State saying he was never a student at the school. Maybe Corn Pop can vouch for him. I mean, and, and by the way, this has nothing to do with supposed mental decline because Joe Biden has been a fabulous to be general, to, to, to be generous for his entire life, just as he's been a political hack his entire life. The plagiarism of Neil Kinnock. He uh, misstated his academic record from the colleges he actually did go to, both undergrad and law school, in terms of what kind of student he was. Wildly misstated them. Not accidental, not a misrecollection. Wild misstatements. He also continues to say that his first wife was killed by a drunk driver, and that's not true. And why would you need to embellish a tragedy like that? That is sick. Let's uh, switch gears and talk a little bit about uh, the New York Times pro forma Trump tax story. Uh, he responded uh, at his briefing on Friday to the story. It's fake news. It's totally fake news. Made up fake we went through the same stories. You could have asked me the same questions four years ago. I had to litigate this and talk about it. Uh, totally fake news. Now, actually, I paid tax. but And you'll see that as soon as my tax returns. I, it, it's underwater. They've been underwater for a long time. The IRS does not treat me well. They treat me like the Tea Party, like they treated the Tea Party. This is the uh, New York Times reporting Trump paid $750 in federal income taxes the year he won the presidency as well as his first year in the White House. Our colleague Hugh Hewitt uh, making the point, in the category of detail most likely to not appear in cable coverage of New York Times story, from 2005 to 2007, Trump paid a total of $70 million in income taxes. Yeah, and, you know, and the, this, whatever, the, the, uh, the tax bills of uh, real estate developers uh, and when it comes to losses they take on property and so on and so forth, complicated matters. I, I don't know that this really is much of anything except trying to run interference, perhaps, in the Hunter Biden story last week or the continued evidence that there was a coup attempt uh, in the uh, in 20 in, in well, it, before Trump took office, after he had won uh, election and then well into his first term of office, both at FBI and CIA. And I want to continue that conversation with Brian Morgenstern, special assistant to the president, deputy press secretary and deputy director of communications. Brian, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So um, the New York Times story first. I mean, obviously, the, the president said fake news and um, you'll see uh, that it's fake news uh, when the time comes for me to be able to release my returns 
or at least partial, at least the top lines of those returns. Um, uh, it doesn't seem to me this uh, story is going to have much staying power. How concerned are you at the White House about it? Oh, not much at all, frankly. Uh, both the president and his attorney came out and said it's fake, that he's paid millions of dollars in taxes. They uh, refused to show his lawyers the documents they were basing their reporting on, claiming they're protecting sources. But if you can't dispute the veracity of them, how are you supposed to defend yourself? So, uh, And the Biden campaign had ads up. Uh, almost immediately after this came out. I mean, this was clearly a coordinated political smear. It also came out on almost the exact same date as the New York Times published basically the same story in 2016. So it's just downright uncreative. I mean, there's uh, just a few other points. I mean, number one, the president donates his salary to the government. During his time in office, we're looking at a million and a half dollars right there. So it's uh, debunked. And just a fundamental question I have for every American. I mean, why would you pay more taxes than you owe? The president wants everybody to have lower taxes. That's why he cut taxes with the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. So he is unashamed uh, about that. I mean, it, it just it, – they tried this. It didn't work. So, you know, I think I'd, I'll just leave it at that. Uh, I wanted to, to get a reaction to these uh, reports out at the end of last week. Paul Sperry, Real Clear Investigations on John Brennan. John Brennan cooking the intel estimate on Russian interference in the election. Uh, prior to uh, Trump receiving a briefing as the president-elect. And then, uh, obviously, uh, uh, everything at FBI, the uh, Steele dossier subsource being uh, a the subject of an FBI counterintelligence investigation for being a Russian agent himself. I mean, uh, at FBI, at CIA, it seems like uh, everybody was colluding with the Russians except President Trump, or candidate Trump and then President Trump, the way this is playing out. It's just the most remarkable thing. And yet Maria Bartiromo was reporting yesterday, according to her sources, uh, she does not believe there'll be a Durham report slash any indictments prior to the election. I mean, how, how are you guys treating this new information and, uh, and and the waiting game for the Durham investigation to be complete? Well, it's it's remarkable, frankly, that, as you state, the the Russians and and everyone except President Trump seem to to be colluding. And nobody talks about how China wants Biden to win. Nobody talks about how Iran just wants utter chaos, and they uh, you know prefer that President Trump lose uh, as well. But it's all about Russia, Russia, Russia. And then we get all we get some of the facts out, and we realize that it was the this shady dossier based on some Russian agent and that it was paid for by the Democrats, not not the president. I mean, it, it, you can't make this stuff up, you know? I mean, people with Trump derangement syndrome have been acting out of pure desperation for many years, and it's finally coming to light. And thank God the American people can finally understand uh, just how bad it has been just how bad the president has been treated with respect to any you know potential criminal investigation or anything like that you know we 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 stay out of that here at the white house the president has said you know i i guess i could get involved but i won't um it, it's best that the career uh prosecutors uh handle these things we're hopeful that that justice will prevail uh and that the american people will have even more information about uh, about these, these bad acts that have been going on. You know, he hasn't uh, been the, the biggest fan of Christopher Ray, the current FBI director, in uh, tweets uh, recently uh, when Ray was testifying on the Hill. Um, you know, yeah. would you say that um, I know everybody's under review in a second term, but maybe Christopher Ray's tenure at the FBI is near the top of that review? 
<laughs> well, I think the uh, there, there's been some frustration. I think that the president has has shown, and the chief of staff has shown as well. But uh, we have no personnel and announcements to make. Okay. Um, and okay. of course, if, 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 yeah. even when the really, chief... you're sure you're not going to make any? Oh yeah, no. Okay. Um, all right. Let's talk, Amy Coney, <laughs> Amy Coney Barrett, and uh, how are uh, you all girding your loins for the confirmation battle to come? I mean, what an outstanding choice. A person with an absolutely sterling academic record, an impeccable professional record, a constitutionalist, a working mother from the heartland of our country, just a, a terrific symbol uh, for women, for mothers, for, for really everyone in our country to, to, to show that you can be a devoted person of faith. You can be devoted to your family. You can also be an outstanding scholar and attorney. Uh, and so we're very excited about her nomination, and, and we're, we're pleased to see the Senate moving expeditiously, and we're hopeful that uh, any of these kind of ugly attacks that we've seen from the left starting to come out are just going to be rejected, uh, because it, it, it's really disgusting to, to attack someone uh, that is putting forth, uh, you know, taking time away from her family, from her busy schedule to serve our country. She doesn't have to do this. Uh, it is, you know, she's honored to do it, but she doesn't have to. And we're grateful for her service. Was there any conversation with uh, McConnell and Senate Republicans about not doing a confirmation hearing? There's no requirement to do it and just going straight to a vote rather than the process. Well, I, I know it was floated, uh, you know, in the in the media. And uh, um, I, I, I can't speak for Senator McConnell or uh, Senator Graham and what process you know, they've been considering, but they made it clear that they would like to have a public hearing. They want a thorough vetting. They want to show the American people that while this process is moving rapidly, uh, it will be thorough and it will be fair. And that includes having a hearing. So um, the Senate's got a job to do. Uh, The White House has done its job in nominating a justice, and now it'll be up to the Senate to consider her. Yeah. Brian Morgan Stern, uh, Special Assistant to the President, Deputy Press Secretary, and Deputy Director of Communications. Brian, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We spoke with uh, Kenosha Congressman Brian Style a couple weeks back when Kenosha was under siege with rioting and looting. And uh, he stands for re-election as a member of the House every two years. So he's up in November and he's just uh, released this new ad. Hi, my name is Jason. I've served as a police officer in the Kenosha area for over 20 years. For the men and women like me who serve in law enforcement, this has been a challenging year in a lot of ways. We've faced calls for defunding our departments. We've witnessed our fellow officers be physically attacked, shot at, and the worst case killed while serving their fellow citizens. Despite all of these challenges, we knew we could count on Congressman Brian Style, because Brian always stands up for local law enforcement. Two years ago, I voted for Brian Style because I knew he backed the band. This year, when we needed him most, Brian was there for us, delivering critical additional resources for Kenosha and showing up to thank the men and women who serve our community every day. I know Brian Style is fighting to keep our community safe. 
he has our back. On Tuesday, November 3rd, please join me in voting for Brian Style. I'm Brian Style. I approve this message, and I ask for your vote. Paid for by Style for Wisconsin, Inc. Approved by Brian Style. And that's not the only uh, message emanating from Kenosha. Uh, Kenosha Sheriff David Beth has an op-ed in the USA Today. I saw firsthand the support, gratitude, and steadfast resolve our president holds for the law enforcement community. The president arrived with a plan to provide the critical resources needed to keep our community safe. His swift and bold responses support our law enforcement family and my community made it clear that he's the strong leader Wisconsin and America needs. It's also why I'm proud to endorse President Trump for re-election this fall. It's not just me. 38 other Wisconsin sheriffs have also endorsed the president. President Trump is backing the blue, and we are proud to back him. David Beth, Kenosha County Sheriff. For more on what's happening north of the Cheddar Curtain, we're pleased to be joined by Brian Stile, representative for Wisconsin's Fighting First Congressional District. Brian, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. With uh, what happened in Kenosha and uh, the sort of response uh, President Trump is, and, and you too are getting from law enforcement, I mean, has, has public safety uh, now risen to the top of the issue matrix in terms of what uh, constituents in your district are thinking about as they vote early or, or uh, head to the polls on November 3rd? I think public safety is in the top three with keeping us healthy and getting us back to work uh, in the state of Wisconsin. But I think it's very obvious that there's a big distinction between the far left and where Republicans are on this issue, where the president is on this issue, is we saw in Kenosha, our Democratic governor in Wisconsin failed to act. He failed to send the needed resources that Kenosha needed. The president, I called him, the president answered my call. He stepped up to the plate. He delivered the resources, reestablished public safety, demonstrated leadership, and I think the voters are going to reward leadership uh, on November 3rd. Uh, In 2016, about 135,000 Cheeseheads voted uh, by mail. The projection this year, 1.8 million. Um, how concerned are you about uh, mail-in voting, the proper processing, and uh, an, an expeditious counting of uh, ballots in Wisconsin? Every state is different. Wisconsin has a pretty good system. Is it perfect? No, but it's a pretty good system. We have we have vo- uh, voter ID, so you need to have an identification uh, when you vote. That includes people that want to vote absentee. Uh, we have three ways to vote in Wisconsin. You can vote absentee. You can vote in person early, or you can vote on the day of. We have a pretty good public record system, checks and balances on this. Anytime you get an absentee ballot in Wisconsin, it's a public record. You can look it up on the website, myvote.wi.gov. Is it perfect? No, but we're not going to have the problems in Wisconsin that I think some of these other states are that just mailed ballots to everybody on their list. In Wisconsin, you still have to request a ballot. Uh, I feel confident that we're going to have the integrity of the system that we need. I think we're going to be able to count these. Somewhere uh, yet on election night before uh, it gets too late, we'll have everything tabulated. And I feel reasonably confident talking to elected officials in Wisconsin. Uh, I also feel good that President Trump's going to win the state. Well, that's uh, encouraging on both scores. Uh, and, but there is still this pending litigation. Uh, the, there was an extension to the absentee ballot deadline that has been halted by a appeals court. So that's still being uh, litigated. Yes, that, this is where these activist judges just drive you bonkers and why President Trump's pick to the Supreme Court is so great. Somebody that just enforces the law doesn't make the law. We had one of these federal judges in Wisconsin come up and rewrite the rules 
of the election saying you could turn your ballots in and they could arrive after election day. That's not what the law says in Wisconsin. The federal judge got overturned by the Seventh Circuit uh, in Chicago, correctly so, saying the law is the law. There's plenty of time to vote in Wisconsin. You can vote today if you want to. Uh, there's plenty of time. Let's not rewrite the rules. And if we are going to write the rewrite the rules, it's not going to be a federal judge. It's going to go through our state assembly, our state senate, and be signed into law by the governor. This is where it just reinforces the importance of the president's pick of Amy Coney Barrett uh, to be on the Supreme Court, that we have non-activist judges, people that just apply the rule, the facts to the law and get the right result. Since you're in a, a swing district in a swing state, what what are you hoping to hear? What do you think President Trump needs to deliver for uh, your constituents, for Wisconsin residents tomorrow uh, in terms of you know, continuing to move the state in the direction you think it's going, which is his column? I went and spoke to a lot of people this weekend talking about the importance of this election. I heard time and again, I think it's really important that the president lays out really clearly what he's accomplished because the mainstream media doesn't want to tell you that. He needs to go out and talk about how he put forward trade agreements that worked for farmers and workers like USMCA. That's the rewrite of the Canada-Mexico trade agreement. He needs to go out and talk about how he reinvested in the military so that we're negotiating from a position of strength, which is getting us um, peace agreements between Israel and their allies. He needs to go out and talk about how he put forward tax reform that drove one of the best economies we had seen before we got punched in the face by coronavirus. If he goes out and advocates the case of saying, here's what I promised you, here's what I did, and here's what I'm going to do in the four years ahead, I think he wins this debate hands down. I'd love to see him stay on substance and lay out the case intellectually for people, because not everyone understands and appreciates what he's delivered for us. What, what would the message be, your recommendation of, on COVID? Because this is an area where the Democrats clearly think they have an advantage. They want President Trump to be forced to talk about COVID as much as possible. Um, how would you uh, address encourage him to address the topic of the handling where we're at and where we're going just as on those other matters he, he has to hit that in open honest and head-on he's got to lay out the case and explain what he did early on like shutting down travel from china to the united states ramping up the private sector to get ppe so our nurses and doctors had the equipment that they needed the ramping up of testing where we have one of the biggest testing regimes in the united states across in the world and then we need to recommit ourselves to getting ourselves to a vaccine and then making the plan to deliver that. That's in process. The federal government's making great strides on that. I feel confident we're going to be to a vaccine before too long. Uh, but then ultimately, we're going to defeat this virus. And then the question is, who do you want to rebuild the United States economy? And the president, Republicans built one of the strongest economies we had seen in generations. And that's who you want to rebuild it again, because everybody we got to get everybody back to work. We got to get everybody a job that wants a job. And we got to go on offense talking about the economic opportunities that this administration poses and will allow us to, to reap the benefits of. He is Brian Style, congressman from Wisconsin's first. Uh, Brian, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Show.com.
Welcome back to the program after our conversation with Wisconsin Rep. Brian Stile, uh, mainly about law and order, a little bit about electoral politics. We return to Amy Coney Barrett, reset what President Trump had to say when he announced her nomination on Saturday. Today it is my honor to nominate one of our nation's most brilliant and gifted legal minds to the Supreme Court. She is a woman of unparalleled achievement, towering intellect, sterling credentials, and unyielding loyalty to the Constitution, Judge Amy Coney Barrett. Now, warmly received, as you would expect, and uh, in her remarks, um, the uh, mentorship that uh, she enjoyed from Justice Scalia, for whom she clerked, came through. I clerked for Justice Scalia more than 20 years ago, but the lessons I learned still resonate. His judicial philosophy is mine, too. A judge must apply the law as written. Judges are not policymakers, and they must be resolute in setting aside any policy views they might hold. Hmm. Well, that should address the concerns of uh, Senate Democrats, but it doesn't seem to. I'm not so sure how uh, responsibly they're listening to wit Hawaii, uh, Hawaii Senator Maisie Hirano's uh, concern about uh, Amy Coney Barrett. The issue is whether her deeply held views can be set aside to enable her to be uh, objective and fair in making her decisions as a justice. Yeah, I mean, if only we had, uh, you know, a judicial record like her record on the Seventh Circuit. Uh, But uh, for more on this, because he's uh, tackled the topic, we're pleased to be joined by John Yu. He is the Emanuel S. Heller Professor of Law at the University of California, Berkeley, author of the recently released uh, Defender-in-Chief Donald Trump's Fight for Presidential Power. John, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Great to be back, Dan. So uh, you uh, write uh, in an op-ed over at Fox News that the left is uh, intent on making Amy Coney Barrett's strength her weakness, and that's her faith, and you just heard it from Maisie Hirano in no uncertain terms, uh, much like you heard it from Dianne Feinstein during her confirmation hearing for the Seventh Circuit. Yeah, I'm sorry to have to say that, but that's the only angle of attack they could Democrats could possibly have against a nominee like Judge Barrett, who's got high intelligence, uh, you know, graduated first from a class in Notre Dame, then a professor at Notre Dame, uh, clerked at the Supreme Court for Justice Scalia, uh, someone with a Clearly, great moral character, big family, adopted kids from Haiti, very devout Catholic, and then her experience on the bench for several years. So the only thing I think that Democrats could attack her for, as you said, you see it already starting, even before she was nominated, back when she was nominated back for a lower court judgeship three years ago, is to try to use her Catholic faith as a pretext for the idea that she's going to vote her moral values in the Constitution and to use Catholicism, I think, as a signal to say, oh, she's going to be against abortion, she's going to be against Roe versus Wade, um, she's going to be against gay marriage. That essentially, the claim is, uh, the implied claim is that she's going to vote the positions of the Catholic Church when she's on the Supreme Court. I think it's a, a repulsive line of attack. I think it verges on the unconstitutional requirement of a religious test for holding public office in our country. Is it is it legitimate to inquire in the area of faith, uh, generally speaking, not, you know, not uh, necessarily the dogma lives loudly within you kind of inquiry, but the idea that, 
you know, I just I understand it. It, ask a question of a person, regardless of their faith, that that, that you understand that this is uh, uh, interpretation and enforcement of secular law. This is not to impute uh, religious or political beliefs into uh, your adjudication of cases. I think it's legitimate to ask nominees uh, whether they have any problems separating their beliefs, their moral beliefs, and their job as a judge. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think after that it should stop. I think if a nominee says, no, I have no problems with that, I wouldn't do that, then I don't think that we should have hearings that start turning into, well, what do you believe about this? What do you believe about that? I, I think, unfortunately, we're, uh, we're retreading the ground, I thought, had been settled by John F. Kennedy when he ran for president in 1960. And he said, no, I'm going to do the job of the president. I don't take my orders from the pope. Uh, unfortunately, I think we're seeing that kind of argument. Let me ask it differently. Have you ever seen in these hearings people ask questions like this to Protestant or Jewish nominees? Right. I don't recall that. Right, right. For more on uh, this, uh, we're going to return with uh, UC Berkeley law professor John Yu, author of Defender-in-Chief Donald Trump's Fight for Presidential Power. I want to recall a, a clip from her confirmation hearing into the Seventh Circuit that uh, has been underplayed. Uh, all the focus on the exchange with Diane Feinstein, that was the top line. But there was another one with Dick Durbin that I think is uh, also concerning. More with Professor Yu. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is, this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. And before the break, I referenced an exchange that Amy Coney Barrett had with Illinois Senator Dick Durbin. And I wanted to get uh, Professor John Yu's take on whether or not he thinks uh, this crosses the line to uh, a discussion of an unconstitutional imposition of a religious test for the threshold question. You use a term in that article, or you both use a term in that article I'd never seen before. You refer to Orthodox Catholics. What's an Orthodox Catholic? As I recall, that term, we said something like, for lack of a better term, we're using the term Orthodox Catholic, and there was a long footnote saying that that was an imperfect term. Uh, it could you know, refer to Orthodox Judaism, you know, Greek Orthodox. And so we kind of cast about, but what that term was designed to capture, because we were talking about conscientious objection, was a judge who accepted the church's teaching that the death penalty would be impermissible in that case. We wrote about it from the perspective of a Catholic judge because my professor, John Garvey, had already undertaken that project. But it's really a problem that could face a judge of any religion or no religion at all who had a conscientious objection to the death penalty. Do you consider yourself an Orthodox Catholic? I am a Catholic, Senator Durbin. I I don't, well, Orthodox Catholic, we kind of, as I said, in that article, we just kind of use that as a proxy. It is not, to my knowledge, you know, a term currently in use. But if you're asking whether I take my faith seriously and I'm a faithful Catholic, I am. Although I would stress that my personal church affiliation or my religious belief would not bear on the discharge of my duties as a judge. Professor John Yu, UC Berkeley, is that uh, close to? Have you, uh, Are you now or have you ever been an Orthodox Catholic, Professor Yu? That's the kind of questions that bother me. I think it's perfectly legitimate for Senator Durbin to ask, what did you mean by this phrase in this written law review article? And Judge Barrett answers that. And she says quite clearly, there's there, there's no real meaning. They were just trying to use, you know, it's an academic phrase that they're trying to use. But then to say, are you an Orthodox Catholic? 
Catholic, what do you believe? Mm-hmm. I think that crosses the line. Um, you uh, also wrote a piece about what uh, a, a justice, Amy Coney Barrett, might mean for the court in terms of the next term and, and just some of the, the big issue areas where they're taking up cases, religious liberty, Obamacare, race-based admissions policies at uh, the collegiate level. You know, there's uh, there's a lot of discussion about, you know, she's an originalist, the court moves incrementally, don't uh, believe the hype of the left that Roe v. Wade is going to be overturned tomorrow and Obamacare is going to be overturned the next day and so on and so forth. What's your assessment of where the court might go with uh, Amy Coney Barrett on it? Well, the court has been, for many decades, in fact, finely balanced between uh, four conservative justices, four uh, liberal justices, and then one or two justices in the middle. Right now, that middle role is being played by Chief Justice John Roberts, who's a Republican appointee. In fact, the Republican presidents have appointed the great majority of justices over the last 50 years, but always Republican appointed justices seem to drift towards the middle or even all the way over to the farthest of the left on the wing of the court. If you have Justice Barrett there, sixth conservative justice, I think that will reduce the ability of Chief Justice Roberts to sort of play games in the middle, to sometimes vote with the left or the right. It would really, I think, set constitutional law in a much more conservative direction probably for another 10 years. Do you suspect that we're going to see, if, again, Judge Barrett is confirmed, which I assume she will be, that we're going to see like a test case on Roe v. Wade to overturn Roe v. Wade, return it to the states or other seminal cases that would sort of change established precedent on big topic areas. Religious liberty, too, is a, there's a the Fulton v. Philadelphia case. Religious liberty may uh, have the opportunity to be, be put on par with the other first freedoms enshrined in the First Amendment in a way that it hasn't been previously, those sorts of cases. Yeah, the court's not like a legislature. It doesn't just change its mind right away. It takes... Uh, time And what happens is over the next few years, should Judge Barrett be on the court, you'll see efforts to cabin or narrow Roe versus Wade or to allow more uh, state regulation of abortion, but not call for the complete uh, rejection or overruling of the decision. That would be many years uh, from now, I think. Uh, there are more immediate cases, like you mentioned, on the docket this year is a case that would uh, finally, I think, reverse a mistaken decision from almost 30 years ago that has given uh, religious rights lesser status and protection than rights to free speech or the press. I think you could see a real expansion of religious liberty in the country after that decision. You also have a case working its way through the courts challenging Harvard University's, I think, outrageous use of racial uh, characteristics to decide who to admit to, cla- to its uh, college classes. And that practice, unfortunately, is pretty widespread in the country. You could see that uh, come to an end because that's been chipped away uh, year after year. So she could have uh, an immediate effect uh, on religion, on race. But I think uh, something like Roe would have to, would, it would take, a, it would be more gradual and take more years. What about uh, that race-based admissions policies? I mean, you saw the administration uh, take Yale at its word. Oh, you're an uh, inherently racist institution. Tell us more. We want a Title VI investigation into exactly how you're racist. And, and again, the action that has been brought by Asian Americans for discrimination based on their race at Harvard and elsewhere. It calls to mind Sandra Day O'Connor's opining in the University of Michigan cases almost two decades ago, where she said, eh, we're not ready to get rid of affirmative action, but maybe in two decades we're, we'll be ready to get rid of it. With ACB on the court, uh, we're about at two decades, two and a half decades. Um, maybe it's time. 
I quite agree. There's several things going on. Harvard is being sued by Asian students because they use this scoring system, which gave them a, a lot, which almost automatically gave Asian students a, the lowest score possible because of their personality and character. Right. <laughs> it's incredible. Right. Yeah. And then uh, Yale's under investigation by the administration, and it's Princeton, where the president of Princeton said, "We are." systemically racist and so then the Trump administration. Oh yes, oh, Princeton, really? yes, 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 yes. <laughs> oh, you're yeah. Systemically racist, are you? Well, oh, we're gonna investigate you too then since you just admitted it. Yeah. Um thanks for sharing, that, right. And, yeah, and then look and then mo- many, many state universities uh, were given the green light, as you said, by Justice O'Connor twenty years ago to start using race in their missions again. But this court has been chipping away at it. It's trying to prohibit the use of race, for example, in K through twelve education with school assignments been cutting back, uh, rejecting the use of race in voting districts. So I think it's time, it's teetering already. And you could see maybe even if Barrett didn't join the court, the justices might strike down college admissions uses of race. But I think if Judge Barrett joins, I think it's hard to, for someone who believes in the original meaning of the Constitution and the plain text of the Constitution to uphold the use of race there when we prohibit everywhere else. One would think. He is the Emanuel S. Heller Professor of Law at the University of California, Berkeley, and author of Defender-in-Chief, Donald Trump's Fight for Presidential Power. Professor John Yu, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. My pleasure, Dan. Anytime. Take care. The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the show. As we close out, let's do, you know, you've heard of the rapid test. Let's do another rapid COVID segment. There's so much to cover every day when it comes to developments and decision making. This out of Wayne State University, as the coronavirus weakening, one study from researchers at Wayne State University say viral loads from patients are continuing to decrease as the pandemic progresses. From uh, April to June 5th, they uh, noted downward trend in the amount of virus detected in patients at Detroit Medical Center. So, uh, you know, one of the things that we've discussed, possible but worthy of more study, we talked about it with Dr. John Lee, the retired pathologist from the UK, is uh, as the virus mutates, the expectation is it would get weaker. But this also may explain in part why it sort of punches itself out or has seemed to in close confines where you've got uh, people on a cruise ship and only between 10 and 25 percent we've seen got infected, even though they were in close quarters. This is pre-run-up to the top of the outbreak. And yet it seemed to punch itself out. I, I don't know. It's just interesting. And this Wayne State uh, University research suggests um, more inquiry as we continue to deal with infections and be able to measure it. Maybe there is something here. And this is, again, additional good news. It's just a maybe, but it is noteworthy, as is this in terms of policymaking. North Texas Children's Hospital saying it's seen an alarming rise in suicide patients since August, especially since August. The hospital admitted 29 children last month after they attempted suicide. For the year, the hospital said it's seen 192 patients of this sort, more than double the number they admitted during the same period five years ago. We see kids every day telling us they're struggling. They wish they can go back to their normal lives, said Dr. Kia Carter, medical director of psychiatry at Cook Children's in Fort Worth. So why don't we get better decisions made? by policymakers across the board and across the country. Here's why. 
because such a significant and vocal percentage of the population is completely fear-addled and has lost any ability for rational thought. Another anecdote. When Rebecca was growing up in Southern California, her parents were there for every step of the way, from drawing a picture, cheering her up after she'd fallen down, to never missing a bedtime story. How I wanted to be with my own child, said Rebecca, but uh, now she's canceled her baby plans. Why? The world is on fire now. I don't want to bring her child into that. Riots, police brutality, raging wildfires, and COVID-19. Right, police brutality. You can't bring your child into a world with police brutality. Wildfires in California or the Pacific Northwest. I mean... I don't want to bring a child into the world. She also um, lost her job at a gym that was forced to close because of COVID-19 lockdown. If only Rebecca could connect dots. Single and 25, and uh, right now, because of what's happened over the last eight months, she is changing her view on having children. Where I say often, if somebody comes to a position not rooted in rationality, you can't get them out of that position with an appeal to rationality. And so we have the problem of the young Rebecca's of America. Thanks for joining us on another edition of the Dan Prof Show. Please do so again for debate night tomorrow, where I'll be taking uh, your calls for the uh, last half of the show as the debate gets up and running. So uh, be sure to do that. And we'll uh, discuss how Trump performs, how Biden performs, who exceeded and fell short of expectations. Catch you tomorrow. This is the Dan Proft Show.